0: That's Blueneile.com.
1: Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with David Walliams as part of my in conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight I'm going to be in conversation with someone who swam the English Channel. He's also one of our biggest selling children's authors. He's an award-winning comedian and TV personality. He's all of that and he likes to wear the dress. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with David Walliams. Thanks for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. I said in the uh, the introduction uh, about you swimming the channel because you are likely to be the only person that I ever interview on this show who's ever swam the English channel because you were the
2: 666th person to do it. That's right. Does that have significance? What, the 666? (laughs) There was a film made about it. You haven't got a a funny mark on the top of your head about it. No, no, I was the 666, but I think a lot more people have done it since, because I actually did it over 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. Um... I remember hearing all about the build-up to it on on the radio, and to my mind and probably to most of the public's mind then, you you were somebody who dressed up in Little Britain and did sketches, and you were doing something that physically... An extreme thing to do. What was the thing that made you think,
2: I'm going to do that? Well, I can't, I'm not really sporty in any way. Um, and the only thing I'm sort of half good at is swimming. And I went on a trip with Matt Lucas to Ethiopia. And Kevin Garhill, who who used to run Comic Relief, said, oh, David, is there anything sporty you have ever wanted to do? And just, just you know, without thinking, I went, oh, I always fancied swimming the channel. He went, you can do it next year for Sport Relief and I was hoping that by the time I got back to London he'd forgotten about it but he hadn't and then he set up various meetings and we started going and at one point I even had to have this heart test to check that my heart was okay um, so that I could undertake the challenge. I was praying there was something wrong with my heart. And then all of a sudden it was like suddenly I was in the process and then by the time, as you know, having done these challenges, by the time the actual day comes when you're going to do it, you're actually really ready to do it because you kind of want the training to be
1: over, yeah, I, because you, you've
2: had enough of the whole thing, yeah. and you just think, I better do this and get it done. And then, I luckily, I never have to do it again, apart but, from a few years later when they say, Will you swim the Thames? But yeah. that's what I mean.
1: <laughs> you, when you say you never have to do it again, you did. You, you, you went well, that... through a whole I don't know, it was probably spans six years where you were doing something every time sport relief mm-hmm. came
2: around. Well, it's it's quite a bug, isn't it? And it, and also, I think taking on something you think you may fail at is actually a good thing for you to do. Because otherwise, if you're just constantly doing things, you think, oh, well, I can do this, this will be easy, then you don't really challenge yourself. Whereas if you're taking on things you might fail at, it becomes interesting. And I take that in my career as well. I don't like to just do one thing. I like to think... Well, this could go wrong and sometimes it does go wrong as we found yeah. out with The yeah. Nightly Show <laughs> you know it's not always you know what I mean It's not. you're not always going to be successful at something but that's that's okay you know that's part of the journey
1: we got in touch with, uh, with Comic Relief Sport Relief and the total that you've amassed with the challenges that you've been involved in individually and collectively is now over five million pounds which is
2: amazing well that's nice Well, yeah. that's nice
1: of all the things I could have spoken you about to begin the interview, it was almost. That reason why I wanted to talk about that because I think that was where the country's perception of you changed and and the more that I've learnt about you the more I understand that by doing that it was it was a bigger step for you to do it than just do the physical challenge because it was the first time you'd stop being a character
2: yeah because at that point at the f- point of the channel I was really known for Little Britain only yeah. and uh, being part of a double act and dressing up as all these characters and so and also all the characters were very you know generally they were very effeminate, weren't they? We played lots of women, we played mm. lots of gay men and stuff. And um, and so I don't think anyone was expecting me to do something like that. Yeah. They just thought I was someone who might sort of hang around sitting at home in a dress yeah. and, even, <laughs> and not, not really taking on board things like that. So I suppose it did change people's perception.
1: Yeah, and that is something that that is something that does follow you around, doesn't it, mm. this, this perception of you, this camp perception.
2: I know. I don't know where they get it from. Well, I, you know, I was, I was an effeminate child. Yeah. Um, when, uh, Well, when I was young. So it was, um, you were probably what, about twenty or thirty at the time. <laughs> um, Wonder Woman. I
1: haven't got a grey beard.
2: <laughs> um, Wonder Woman was on uh, on TV and. Uh, and she used to change by spinning round. Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to play that in the playground. I remember being Wonder Woman and not, oh, ha, ha, ha. And not, and, not, and not thinking anything much of it. But obviously, I was in an old boys' school and it was like, oh, he wants to be Wonder Woman. We want to be Batman and Superman yeah. and he wants to be Wonder Woman. So it was just, but it's just something that's sort of always naturally been me. And, and I really wasn't thinking about acting at all until I was about 11 or 12. and at my school right grammar school they were doing a this was slightly pretentious school they, we were doing an operetta did they do operettas at your school
1: not many <laughs> <laughs> not, not many and it
2: was called it was called all the king's men and there was a part in it of the queen um queen henrietta maria and the boy who was going to play the part dropped out because he just thought it was this is too humiliating i can't you know appear in a dress in front of all the other boys at school and uh, my english teacher at the time he he just sort of Made, made me stay behind uh, at the end of, a, end of a lesson and said, oh, would you like to do it? Because he obviously thought that, you know, I would be good as a queen. And, um, and uh, you know, I, didn't, I wouldn't really know exactly what I was getting myself into, but um, my mum, who's here tonight, she was very helpful. She found me a very nice wedding dress to wear. <laughs> and we got like a 20p wig from a jumble sale as well. None of the other boys had wigs. None of my ladies-in-waiting, so I stood out. And um, I had no idea even that it would be funny, but I remember coming out in front of the audience and saying my lines and acting in this sort of rather extravagant way, you know, Queenly way with my nose in the air and fanning myself, and people laughing. I think, "Oh, this is good. This is a nice feeling. I'd like to. I'd like to experience this again." And uh, but it just sort of fell into my lap in a way. And I think also I made a connection then between acting in that way and getting laughs, which is probably why I've always sort of been drawn to that because I've always thought, "Okay, well, if I do that, people might laugh." But it's a, like a
1: defense mechanism, or just it more. It like...
2: It was a bit of a defense mechanism at school. Because I was also like had lots of nicknames and one of them was Daphne. That was called Daphne for some reason, and for I was...
1: some reason I think we can guess the reason <laughs> Have you, if you've been the one that they cast as a queen yeah, without an yeah. audition.
2: So I was called Daphne and I was in the combined cadet force and uh, and there was lots of sort of bullying along, you know, because it was like in the 80s, that my, it was like the worst thing to be gay. It was sort of like, if you know, you, people would just go around going, you're gay, and it was like the way of kind of, you know, I don't know, pun, being mean to people, I suppose. But I would embrace it and play up to it. And so they call me Daphne I'd go, yes, my name's Daphne. and. And it would sort of neutralize the bullying in a way, you know what I mean? As in, I could, I could be the victor of it in a way. Yeah. Because You're they were putting them. all this onto me. And instead yeah. of me crying and running away, I would go, yeah, yeah, and, and, and show off. And so, in a way, I was kind of in on the joke.
1: Yeah.
2: But Ben Miller, who's a brilliant comedian, he once said, a com- the comedian's worst fear is being laughed at. And he said, a comedy. Uh, is really a way of controlling that laughter. So people are already maybe laughing at you and you think, oh, hang on, I've got to get in on this. Mm. And that's why it's often quite dysfunctional or sometimes slightly absurd people who get into comedy.
1: You're now kind of ubiquitous on telly. Everyone oh, sees well, you it at some... <laughs> t- 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 but on, on <laughs> so many facets, and if you look at your career, it is so multi-layered. and we'll come on to different aspects of it. But the access point seems to be comedy, and I don't... What I was trying to, I guess, understand is whether comedy was the first love or comedy was the thing that you could do to get you in the world when maybe the straight acting was the, the thing that you wanted.
2: know, uh, I definitely grew to love comedy and definitely really wanted to be a comedian. At the time, I was, I was 12 or 13 and I was buying loads of comedy records mm. like Monty Python, Tony Hancock, and I was also very obsessed with Rowan Atkinson who had had a huge success in Not the Nine O'clock News and then was going on to Blackadder and he was like my absolute favorite comedian. And he had these brilliant sketches that were written by Richard Curtis and Ben Elton that he'd perform in one man shows. I mean, my sister actually went to go and see one and when I was about 14 or 15, I was thrilled. And then a few years later, I saw him on stage and I waited for him afterwards to get his autograph. And I said, have you got any advice for for an aspiring comedian? I was a teenager and he went, don't do it. That was it. I was so crushed. And then many years later, I met him when me and Matt Lucas were doing a picture for Radio Times with Rowan Atkinson for Comic Relief. I said, well, you won't remember, but you told me not to do it, but I'm really glad I didn't take your advice.
1: You, you, mentioned, you mentioned Matt, who you met at the National uh, Youth Theatre, didn't you? When you met, what, what was the... The gel that brought it together was a comedy. Was it something that you said, look, we can, we've got like minds? Because what you created was really phenomenal.
2: Well, we met in 1990. Which is before a lot of the people here today were born. And um, basically, I was in one group and he was in another group. And I was told, Oh, you've got to meet Matt. He's really, really funny. And obviously, you think, Do oh, I want to meet this person? It's funny. Um, you know, because you think, Well, I want to be the funny one. And uh, <laughs> someone else is funny. And we just loved each other's company from the start. We just could talk endlessly about comedy together because he also had a kind of encyclopedic knowledge. And also, he liked, he was really into Charlie Chaplin. We were both into like Laurel and Hardy. And we were both like two comedy nerds basically coming together and sharing it and thinking wow wouldn't it be amazing if one day you know we could do something too we could be on tv as well i mean no idea how it would ever work so we'd meet up and we start we'd have lots of ideas for tv shows i mean obviously most of them never ever got made and characters and things and then um i left university got into writing for children's television was kind of what was what was paying the bills at that time and i was writing for ant and deck um they had it whatever happened to them um and they had a show called the ant and deck show so i've known them for over 20 years and Matt started off doing stand-up as a character called Sir Bernard Chumley. And he did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival one year for, like, he just did, like, a 15-minute set in someone else's show. And then the next year, which was 1995, we said, let's do a show together. And, and that was really the first time we were properly being creative together. But uh, it's weird how it, how it all happens, because you can't plan it. I mean, you'd love to be able to perfectly plan your career. Because we weren't doing Little Britain at that time. We weren't even doing any of the no. Little Britain characters, because we hadn't come up with them yet.
1: So when you sat, the writing process that you went through with, with you and Matt, um, how, how did it work? Did, did you just bounce off ideas? Did one of you just create characters that were specific to them?
2: Well, we would, we would basically both become the characters when we were writing. It didn't really matter who was playing it. And we'd both just try and improvise as the characters, sometimes at the same time. And then we got, when we got onto good things, we'd, we'd start writing it down. So it was, a, it was actually a really, really free kind of process. And we kept office hours and just, just because you know you, you write a lot more stuff than you ever use. Oh yeah. And so we just spend ages and ages trying to, trying to make characters. And, and often you would return to ideas that maybe you might have had ages ago. Like Matt had made this documentary at university, because well, he was at Bristol after me, where he went up to people in Bristol and just said, how are you? And there was this youth, a sort sort of 14-year-old boy went, yeah, or something, I didn't really know, or nothing, or I didn't know, <laughs> like that. And he, and he showed me this thing, and, it, and you know, both it had amused us, but it wasn't until many, many years later that together we created the character Vicky Pollard. So sometimes it was sort of, you just find, suddenly find the key to something that, you, that you know, you, you'd observed and thought was funny. Other times, I remember after the first series, being in the BBC, you didn't get paid much money, and, and I had to go to the bank to try and get a bank loan. Uh, so I went to my local nut West, and I was brought into this little room with this lady, and it was a computer. I said, Oh, well, what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> um, how much do you want to borrow? I oh, £5,000. £5,000? £5, well, put the details into the computer, let's see what it says. <laughs> and so we sort of sat there in silence for a few seconds, went, Oh, computer says yes! <laughs> like that. <laughs> Anyway, so it amused me, and I went back to Matt and I said this had just happened and 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 so it became you know became different became this morose woman um who enjoyed saying computers knows people but but it um, it just came from something in real life um and and most of the characters have some you you could trace the origin of them all somewhere um, another time someone told me a story about how there was a four-year-old who still breastfed and he'd yeah. go up to his mum <laughs> when he wanted to be breastfed and he would poke his mum's tit like that and go, bitty, bitty, like that. And he was four years old and I thought, this is something interesting. OK, what if he's 24? <laughs> um, you know, so it's all, it's all just, I think, you know, like, listening, looking the whole time, observing, um, and, and then, you know, treating these little ideas that, you know, Around us all the time, treating them as little seeds and then growing a, a tree from that. But I'd say, yeah, pretty much every single character you could you could trace some some experience of in some way.
1: Being somebody who wanted to act, to being somebody who wanted to perform comedy, to somebody who wanted to make a living and couldn't make a living from it, you are getting a loan from the bank and so on, to all of a sudden, bump. I mean when it was really quick as well. It went from, you know, Radio four to BBC One to prime time to a massive arena tour, multi award winning. When you were in that whirlwind, did you did you kind of think, this is exactly what I wanted? This is what I thought fame would be? Or did you think, Jesus, this is this is just bonkers?
2: I felt like we were in a car and the brakes had been cut and we were just sort of vaguely still in control of it because obviously the show became so big that it sort of didn't belong to us anymore. It sort of belonged mm-hmm. to everyone. And we'd pick up a paper and, you know, with anybody who got Nasbo, they'd have a picture of Vicky Pollard or there was something perhaps about... About Peter Mandelson or something. there be a picture of me as Sebastian or something. You know, it was like <laughs> it was just in the culture. And also, we never thought we were going to be the kind of show that is, you know, on BBC One on Christmas Day. And so we were not prepared at all for the level of fame that it brought.
1: I've never, I've never had an opportunity with a guest actually when you talk about the change and becoming famous. As you say, it changes for you. But I may as well, Ask your mum, your mum's here and Julie's here. How did it change from, from your perspective, Kathleen, with them all of a sudden being on the telly?
2: I was very proud, obviously, of what they've done. I mean, with everybody saying, oh, I love this and Ooh. I love that, and isn't he good and isn't it this? I mean, it's it's just incredible, you know. I mean, I'm now a star of the place where I live, you know. Yeah. <laughs> because he's my son, you know, and that's fantastic.
1: That's all, Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh... You are incredibly close. I mean, I, I, I see you two together more than I see anybody else with them.
2: A boy's best friend is his mother. Who said that? Norman Bates in Psycho. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> I think.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, um, you know. Sadly, uh, my dad uh, died uh, about ten years ago, and um, so my mum is my mum is on her own. And um, and so it's nice to include her and take her to things. And she's yeah. met incredible people. She's met the Queen not once, twice. <laughs> she met her first the year that I swam the channel. We got invited to a reception at Buckingham Palace and she met the Queen then. And then recently we were at an event and it was 10 years later and, she, and we met the Queen. And she was sort of standing bef- in front of me, you know, and in, in the lineup. And so the Queen was looking at my mum thinking, God, don't be David, this is, I'm not trying to be rude, but she was <laughs> looking at her, and my mum went, I met you ten years ago, actually. <laughs> thinking, you know, thinking that the Queen would go, oh yes! <laughs> <laughs> she oh, doesn't meet happy? too many people, does she? <laughs> um, so you've yeah, met the Queen twice. <laughs> who, are you, who have you been most excited about meeting? Uh, well, apart from John. Yes. Um... Yeah, she. I think she's got a crush on you. I just uh, warned you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, you're very big with that demographic, aren't you? You're, you're right. catnip for the old lady, aren't yeah. you?
1: <laughs> but f- for you, 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 you said that, that you lost your dad ten years ago. So, your dad
2: did see... He did, yeah. Did and, and, and he was break. there the day that... Uh, that you swam the, swam shum- the, swam the channel. Yeah. and So, I was pleased that uh, my mum and dad were there. And, and my mum is, gets very bad seasickness. Um, but, obviously, the only way you can follow someone swimming the channel, unless you want to swim it yourself, is, yeah. is on a boat. And the whole thing, you know, it took ten and a half hours to swim it, and another few hours to come back. And my mum was throwing up the whole time. She was below deck, lying down, throwing up on this boat for about fourteen hours. And when I said to my mum afterwards, "Oh, did, did you regret, you know, going on the boat?" She went, "I wouldn't have missed it for the world." <laughs> so there we are. That's real devotion for you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free.
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
1: You're talking there about the big breakthrough being in Little Britain. Uh, but also, what I didn't realize is that it was also... It coincided at the lowest point for you personally because you had to sort out your your depression, which is mm. something that you've been really open about and uh, and inspiring about in many respects. Well, I get
2: a I get a, a positive response from people who have also suffered from depression or are suffering from depression from being open about it because obviously it. it's the stigma of it yeah. that stops people from talking about it and sharing it. And um, but I think it's a very pernicious. Disease, isn't it? Because of course when you're in the middle of it you don't really see it for what it is. You don't. If you break your leg you know you've broken your leg and you know you know it's gonna hold you back but with depression it just, it just changes the way you think and feel about everything in the world and so it's hard to accept that the reason you're thinking and feeling that way is because you're ill rather than just because things really are that way. It's very very mm. complicated um, and um, luckily I, I did get some help and was I met a great um psychologist who helped me and you know I also think there's no shame in taking some medication when you're when you're depressed because i mean it 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 does work and uh and it does help you sort of shrug things off a bit more but yeah i I wrote about it in in my autobiography and i I'm glad I did um it's hard because I get asked a lot to do lots of things for, for for mental health charities, and it's sort of I'm I'm slightly hesitant sometimes because I, I sort of don't, I'm not sure I just want to be the poster boy for it because I don't, I'm not sure I want people to see me and go, oh yeah, there's that depressed bloke, yeah. you know, because I feel like I'm there to make them laugh hopefully and uh, entertain people. So it's it's sort of complicated, but. Um, I think the more people talk about it, and the more open people are with it, the more it's, um, more people are going to be able to beat it.
1: Yeah, because uh, what struck me from from reading the book uh, is the fact that it was something that clouded your life all the way almost through your life without really being recognised.
2: Um, you know, part of it when people talk about depression is also like manic-depression. Manic Obviously, creativity to some point, to some level, in perhaps your like manic phase. Mm. You know, so you're kind of this great rush of creativity, and and then when that stops, uh, and obviously that's an escape as well. You know, when I write books or dress up as characters or whatever, I'm escaping from the real world. It's not the real world anymore, and then suddenly I have to go back into the real world. So well, what are you again, escaping some, from? You? Uh, well, I think when you when you play characters, definitely. And there's nothing yeah. I like more than looking in the mirror and seeing someone different. So it's the biggest thrill when you do a show like Little Britain and it come fly with me and you've got these amazing makeup artists and costumes and, and you know, you go, oh, I'm someone else. Brilliant, I'm someone else. It's, it's the most brilliant thing in the world. But I've got, I've got, I think I've matured and I've got better at being me.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, but this, this, this side, this, this depressive period seemed to coincide when you needed it least because you just got the commission mm. with, with the BBC and so on. Mm. And so it must have been, I suppose, really a make or break in some respects. It really. was,
2: but it forced me to do something about it. I think because I had to get well to do to do the show, and I really wanted to do the show. Yeah. So, um, so it, you know, forced me to really to really seek help that I'd yeah. never really done before.
1: I didn't know about the you know the thought of suicide <clears throat> or the suicide attempts that you wrote about within the book, and. It, the statistics suggest it's the, it's the thing that's likely to kill more young men than anything else, is suicide. And you mentioned then that you don't want to be a poster boy for it. But have you seen a reaction to the fact that you said, look, you know, if you were a, a teenager when you, when you first considered suicide and it's been something that you'd considered a number of times until you'd actually sought help. Have you found that people have said to you, you know, thanks for saying it because it maybe made people think that they weren't alone when they were in the same position.
2: Yes, I, I'd say, I get that a lot. Probably every day, someone contacts me in some way or another, and mentions that either a letter or perhaps something online yeah. or something. So, so that's good. But I think it's it's that unfortunately, we, there's this stigma, and I feel like people don't don't you know seek help because it affects a lot of people, and it's. It's also something that is to some extent fixable.
1: But it's also then a burden of responsibility because as you say, if people contact you almost on a regular basis, you kind of Mm. do by default.
2: It's very hard when you get a letter with someone saying, oh, I'm thinking about killing myself. You know, it's really tough because of course you feel like a huge responsibility in the way that you respond to that person. Mm. And of course, they're a total stranger. You know, nothing about their situation other than what they might have told you in the letter. And, you know, you're not a trained medical person or anything. So, um, you know, I always say to people in that situation, you should really, you know, tell your family, tell your friends and, and seek help because I don't, obviously, I, don't, I, can't, I can't be, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not qualified to be a sort of agony aunt and I'm not qualified to, to you know, give someone absolute watertight advice on those things um but i uh, just talking about it today you know and on this show i am somebody out there will be watching hopefully and they might think oh actually you know i'm ill and i need to get some help
1: a few years after it kind of exploded He did the biopic of uh, frankie howard now having when when you're looking at somebody's life like you there, there, there was actually comments within the press he's like frankie howard he's got the character of frankie out he plays the campness of frankie out Uh, And Frankie Howard's life, as portrayed in this, uh, was very conflicted by the fact that he could be camp on stage but not publicly be gay. And he had a partner, uh, Dennis, who became his manager and, and looked after him. It's really, really powerful, it's very strong, and the interaction between you two is... Yeah, really we became
2: good. good friends actually. It was it was funny because um, me and Rafe, we had lots of scenes where we had a kiss and stuff like that. So we'd, you know, it was slightly, you'd have to touch him up and it was, you know, slightly embarrassing. And we'd always like, we'd always have like Nuts and Zoo magazine. <laughs> and then we'd kind of become, and become very straight again. <laughs> oh, look, oh, look at that, you know. Um, but, uh, but. <laughs> so, so you you'd oh, gave him all the knockers on it. <laughs> What was it your It's, it's, it's just, slightly <laughs> embarrassing. I mean, it's just you yeah, know, it's not, it's not, it's not even just that it was two men. It's slightly embarrassing even to start snogging, oh, yeah, I, snogging a friend. You know, if you um, you,
1: you must have done that in order I all have. The yeah, I was there, one so.
2: funny thing. I was doing this program attachments, and with the late, great Andrew Sachs, actually who played my dad. And I had to have this affair with, with this woman that was his, his girlfriend, who so was an old, older lady. And the scene ended with me kissing her. So it was like, you know, they start to kiss and then it's cut. And then, so there was this lady who was, you know, probably about 20 years old, was about 30. And I would kiss her in the scene, at the end of the scene, and then they say cut, and I didn't know whether to immediately go like that, stop kissing her, (laughs) or sort of nicely finish off the kiss. (laughs) I don't want her to think that uh, you know it's sort of awful and disgusting to have to kiss her. I also wanted to think that I was trying to kind of make a pass at her. There's a there's a funny thing that Roger Moore was meant to say Um, before he did a sex scene with someone. He said, "I'm." I apologise if I do get an erection, and I apologise if I don't.
1: <laughs> um, there's, just no,
2: there's no... There's no good way to do it. I mean, people who do it all the time, you know, I mean, if you're some sort of sexy actor who gets a little love scenes all the time, it's really, really, really embarrassing. Luckily, I, there's not much call cool for me to do love scenes. <laughs>
1: But what struck me about it as well is because there's always been this bit because of your camp personality and people saying, is he gay, is he not gay? And then to to take on a part where you're going to play somebody who was effectively made to be in the closet and to be gay and and then to do a scene where you're going to kiss another man Did that that ever end to your head and think, oh, I'm just going to fall fuel on the fire here? Or did you just go, Mm. you know what, you can get beyond that?
2: No. I mean, I'm I'm actually amazed that people are even asked those questions anymore. I mean, you know, the people are who they want to be, aren't they? And I don't really understand why... Everyone wants to define people all the time, but um, I think no, no why, I, it, I don't think I don't think they do. But it is something that you have played up. Yeah, I've played up to it, and I, you know, and I. I you think do, you do. He's got talent. I and. know because the one thing that makes Simon Cow squirm <laughs> is the uh, you know any sort of aspersions about his sexuality because a lot of people do. I mean, it's the main question people ask me: Is Simon Cow gay? Um, and uh, and so he uh, it does make him quite uncomfortable, and I suppose that's why I do it, because I feel like my job on that show is just completely to wind him up. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, you know, but then I am quite starstruck by him, and, and, you know, he has got a lot of charisma, so it's hard not to have a little bit of a crush on him. <laughs> Now, obviously, we
1: know you from Little Britain, and we, we know you from being a judge on, on Britain's Got Talent, but the world that you've created, which I find fascinating about you, also is this world as a, as a children's author. How on earth did that begin?
2: It just began with an idea. I just thought, what would happen if a boy went to school dressed as a girl? Um, I'd received a letter from a boy who was a Little Britain fan Who sent me a picture of himself dressed as Emily Howard um, for their school dress-up day? And I remember thinking, well, that's quite brave. So Emily Howard being the Amelie character, yeah, yeah. And so he 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 sent me this picture, and then I met him um, outside uh, the stage door. I think when we were doing gig in Manchester. And people often say, you know, obviously if you get a lot of letters and people say, oh, do you remember I sent you a letter? And sometimes you have to lie and say, oh, yes, of course. you know, because you've got a lot of letters and you couldn't possibly remember. But I did remember his. He said, you remember?" I said, yes, I do. I do remember. And I remember think, saying, oh, that's very brave that you went to school dressed like that. You know, how do people react to stuff? He was a very sweet kid. But it just got me thinking, OK, well, he did it, you know, I guess as a bit of a giggle, from, you know, with his friends. Um, but I thought, OK, what if someone really wanted to do it for, you know, their own personal reasons? And I thought, it's a book about being different. Um, As a book about a child this might make a good children's book Uh, I started writing and I realized there was so much more you could do in a book than you could do in a comedy sketch Because a comedy sketch a good comedy sketch wants to be over in two or three minutes you don't have time to get into people's emotions or in a life it's not really the point of a comedy sketch but in a book you can and I realized along with humor I could also have emotional scenes too and or quite a lot of myself in it it's not it's not exactly autobiographical but it is personal
1: and also as a as a man writing for children were you placing yourself in your emotional position as you were as a child or were you just saying look this is a plot line I've got to make it work
2: I was definitely thinking back to when I was 11 or 12 and what I was interested in and what I thought was funny and what I might have thought was exciting or scary I think you have to do that as a children's author, is try and see the world through yeah. a child's eyes. Uh, I wasn't sure it was within me to do this emotional stuff because I'd been on this path for so long with uh, comedy sketches and so it just, it never really featured. But It's the craziest thing when you're creating imaginary characters for a book and you're writing a sad scene and you're actually in tears writing it. It's not real, you know it's not real. Um, but. For some reason, because it's become it's sort of become real to you in some way, because it's in your head, um, it can affect you like that. And so many people say, "Oh, I you know cried at the end of Gangster Granny. You know, why did she need to die and all that kind of thing?" You think it's incredible, isn't it? They know it's not real either, but it yeah. but it's a, it's a story. And um, I was thinking of my own grannies a little bit when I was writing the story because I I used to think some you know one of my grannies was a little boring and she you know we'd have to play Scrabble and the food wasn't great and, you know, she used to want to watch the Black and White Minstrel show. <laughs> 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 or whatever, on a Saturday night, you know, odd things. And, um, and um, But then I spoke to her about the like, Second World War and she'd become really, really, uh, really engaged and uh, she'd have loads of brilliant stories to tell. It made me think everyone has, a, has an interesting story to tell. You just have to ask them.
1: Every time we get people on this show, we always ask them to bring a photograph mm. in that, that's personal to them this is this the pity that you you you've
2: selected (laughs) talk us through that um well this is probably about 1971 or 1972 it's my sister julie who would have been about two or three me just been born and my mum with a hairstyle from the 50s but it is the 70s Holding us both, and you know what, I mean, I think I was at my absolute happiest when um, my sister had gone off to school (laughs) and I was at home with my mum... Of a day, and I'd have mints and peas for lunch. As we would listen to the Jimmy Young show on the radio. and When I hear that Jimmy Young music, I can remember it all. And it was just me and my mum when I was probably about three, and had my mum all to myself. And um, and I th- everyone would think, when were you most happiest? I'd say it was then.
1: How, how how did you get on with your dad?
2: Um, I got yeah. I mean. I got on with i didn't go on I wasn't as close as as I am yeah. to my mum and uh my dad worked for London transport as a as a civil engineer and he was um he repaired bridges and tunnels and so um it you know it's not like there was a natural chemistry around those kind of things, but he was proud and he did say it, and you know when we watch if we, ever, we have seen the clips again of the of the channel documentary you see my dad looking yeah, yeah, super yeah. super proud, which is which is a wonderful thing, and um, and as I said, that's what you want, isn't it? To make your parents proud more than anything.
1: As a father,
2: mm.
1: you know you have this thing now because you, you're you're a father. You you've you a son, Alfred, who you, you you're massively close to and, and you love. Are you are you learning the lessons of how to be a dad from this this relationship that you've got, and are, and also? Alongside that, has it changed your view of the world in terms of... I don't know, what's the word that I'm after? ..in in, in terms of how you carry yourself, I
2: suppose? Well, um, I suppose, you know, at the end of my life, what I really want to be judged upon is whether I was a good father or not. Mm. That'll be the most important thing. I think when you become a father you become a bit more forgiving of whatever you feel might have been things with your parents that weren't quite right because you realise we're all flawed and we're all trying our absolute best. And you also understand a bit more why your parents love you in the way that they do because they've held you in their arms and they've changed your nappy and they've done all those things, you know, read you stories. and you know, made these huge sacrifices for yeah. you and so you, you respect a lot more um, what they did and also you realise you have to treasure those moments you know, when children are young because they don't, they don't stay young forever, do they? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it does, it does change you because everything you do from the point that you become a parent is now you have your child in mind, don't you? About mm-hmm. everything you do, every single decision you make about your work or travel or whatever it is, is now about your child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of have to stop myself from telling him I love him because if I, I would do it a hundred times a day, and stop myself from from kissing him all the time because again I would do it a thousand times a day. So, um, but yes, it's...
1: Uh, I'd, I'd stop before he's 16. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I found that's when it gets awkward. <laughs> it, but it, it is that thing as well, when you <clears throat> become a parent, as you say, you become a bit more forgiven, but you're also a bit more understanding of some of the stuff you put your parents through. Mm.
2: Yeah, and you it... feel guilty about the times where you weren't, you weren't um, grateful. Because just, I just sort of accept, oh yeah, of course, you know, they're going to pick me up from this place or take me there or you know, come and watch me do my swimming practice or, you know, pay school fees or whatever it might be. You just sort of think, yeah, yeah, that's what you do. You're a parent. But of course, you do make a lot of, you know, they did make a lot of sacrifices Mm. and as as you make sacrifices for your kid, but you do it in a very unthinking way, don't you? Because you love them so much, you do anything for them.
1: I literally could sit here for another five hours talking to you because- Please don't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I need a wee. And so do I. (laughs) And so do I, and I'm trying to think of a great way of wrapping this up. And so I'm gonna do you're the
2: greatest guest I've ever had on the show and an inspiration to millions around the world. I've said that three (laughs) times this series.
1: (laughs) No, the truth is, David, listen, I I think you are multi-talented, multi-faceted, but also you, you have undoubtedly one of the biggest hearts I've come across, and I think that's that, that's come out tonight. And I think we'd all agree this has been
2: a wonderful conversation. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's <laughs> very kind of you Thank you, John. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on demand service.
0: When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo.